T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Now with the MLB app, you can get baseball your way. Pick your favorite team, your favorite players, and get customized highlights, stories, and breaking news right on your home feed. Follow the action with Game Tip, where 3D replays add another dimension. Plus, notifications can keep you connected to every pitch, every hit, every game. The MLB app. Baseball, your way. Download it now for free from the App Store or Google Play. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trade parts used with permission. Deep drive to left. This is trouble, and this is going to be a two-run home run for Luis Robert. They rocket to the seats in left. And the White Sox have taken a 2-0 lead here in the second inning. That left the park in a hurry. Luis Roberts, a rocket to the seats in left. Louie Louie indeed. Uh, I guess that wrist is okay. Welcome in, welcome back. Steve Rosenblum, Mark Grody, Saturday Suckage. And the WB Club, as we heard from President Emeritus Toby last hour. This hour we are starting... We're going to the Alpamonte Ford hotline, Alpamonte Ford in Melrose Park. We're going to welcome in from Sox Machine, Jim Margalis. Jim, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? We're, we're doing good. I So here's the way things look to me, and I want to see how your mental, emotional, baseball-watching mm-hmm. state is. Last weekend, <clears throat> they faced the Cardinals, you're, the White Sox do, and for 18 innings, they do nothing against a team that hadn't played for almost a month and had all sorts of COVID-19 problems. But since then, they've scored 47 runs on 62 hits and knocked out 22 homers. This is, this is a team that, that is really putting the all in all on the nothing in nothing. So this, <laughs> I guess we should expect this from a, a young team with, that thinks and knows that it's good by and large, but isn't always good, and then the the lows are going to be low. Is that accurate? Do you find it different? And how are you dealing with this? Well, uh, yeah, I'm finding the season along the same lines, and I realize that uh, it's very much like the emotions of the season, and when I'm recording the podcast with uh, Josh every Sunday, that the emotions tend to follow the schedule. You know, they're beating the teams they should beat, They're looking a little bit overwhelmed by the teams that are better than them or ahead of them in the standings. And so basically you can just match your emotions to the record of the other team. And I'm generally okay with that this year because more than half of the teams make the playoffs this year. And, uh, you know, I kind of charted it out to see, you know, if they win every series, they should win and lose every series. They should lose what they have like a 32 and 28 record. And that's going to be good enough to get to the postseason. And, and, it kind of looks like to me that, uh, by and large, that Rick Hahn has built the best third-place team in the American League or maybe in baseball, and that'll work this year. So uh, I guess I'm more or less uh, – that, that's what I'm using to steal myself against those low moments like you described. And 
uh, you know, the, the talent has definitely improved. I, I think, as you mentioned, with the home run uh, outbursts, that was the biggest problem they had last year, was just giving up way too many homers and not hitting nearly enough of them to overcome all their other flaws. And this year, they're hitting the ball at the park with uh, with uh, someone called alarming regularity. I would call it a uh, thrilling regularity. And uh, that goes a long way to solve what they've, uh, you know, their, their biggest problems over the last few years. This game was on, on national TV last night, a sixth straight win overall for the Sox. It was not the Tigers, nor was it the Royals against whom the White Sox have dominated this year. It was, in fact, the Cubs, without being too dramatic in a baseball sense. How important was this win for the White Sox last night? Well, I think it's important in a couple of regards. One is that the other pitching matchups aren't nearly as favorable over the weekend. So, you know, winning a Dallas Keuchel start, winning as many Dallas Keuchel starts as they can is important. Also, John Lester being a lefty who, you know, throws, you know, is hard-pressed to hit 90 and, you know, relies more on location. The White Sox really haven't struggled against lefties. They have a lot of power-hitting righties who see the ball well and have been, you know, hammering them. They they really struggle against righties, and I think like a Kyle Hendricks could pose some certain problems working them over and expanding the bottom parts of the zone and just you know showing that their polish really is lacking. But a guy like Lester, they should hit, so they they really did hit him. And uh, uh, I, I think those are the kind of situations on paper when they have that kind of on paper matchup that works in their favor, especially you know against teams that are pretty good, um, which I think the Cubs qualify as that. Uh, to win these games that, that line up for them well, I think, is important. Uh, you know, right now, there is no must-win game. But for a weekend series like this, it's a should-win game. And you know, when they put that away, uh, like they did uh, uh, last night, it makes the rest of the weekend a little bit more easier to take however it unfolds. Well, that's a great, great answer. But, but the, from the, what about from the symbolic standpoint of here we are now, entertain us. We're the White yeah. Sox, and <laughs> we just dominated our our rival, our rival, which happens to be a really good baseball team. Yeah, it it, it certainly doesn't hurt, especially like I, I watched the local broadcast. I didn't see the ESPN one, but I heard that they misidentified Lucas Giolito a couple times. You know, they oh, <laughs> the no. national broadcast still has to learn their names, and I think you know doing that on a national stage when you have these. You know, high-profile talents. Makata was out, but Luis Robert quickly naming, uh, making a name for himself. Eloy Jimenez hitting the ball to the pole field in the air. That's what I was looking to see. And so him uh, hitting the scoreboard or nearly hitting the scoreboard, I couldn't quite tell with the lighting. But uh, <laughs> either way, just seeing that, uh, you know, seeing that power and excitement just unfold in real time on a big stage like that uh, on a broadcast where you know White Sox fans get irritated uh, by ESPN not paying attention to them, and then when ESPN is trying to catch up, trying to learn the names and backstories and everything like that, it's a little irritating watching them. But uh, yeah, this is the painful period of the ESPN national recognition process. And I think the, 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 the more performances like this, the faster everybody's going to get to know them. Yeah, but they're shamelessly stupid. I mean, the fact that you had, <laughs> you don't, Alex Rodriguez doesn't know Roger Bossard's name is just, it's, you're not, you're not prepared. Someone's not preparing you. You might, you might have somebody in charge of making sure you know stuff. But the fact that ESPN has yet to learn that the White Sox have won a World Series this century, it's just, mm-hmm. it's nuts. It's just, it's crazy that you could be that, you could be the sports network and be that stupid about the sports. You have enough people there to make sure you know it. And I don't begrudge White Sox fans holding a grudge 
because that's just unprofessional. So you guys carry on, and I know you guys are good with grudges. You guys carry that on. You tell ESPN <laughs> to keep their nose out of White Sox business from now on until they know who Lucas Giolito is. <laughs> Yeah, I think they said it was Nick Giolito or something. Yeah, and, and yeah, right. when I did hear their last ESPN broadcast where they were on with Cubs and Cardinals being postponed, there was a lot of like second baseman and center fielder versus Madrigal and Engel, you know, whoever was out there at the time. So yeah, it was just, uh, yeah, their their unfamiliarity is is quite glaring right now. And and but you know, if the White Sox want to, and, and that was the other nice thing was like seeing them play well uh, the last Sunday that they're on ESPN under the lights with the, with the 83 uniforms, like those throwbacks, I just associate with so much bad baseball because they started wearing them in 2013. That's the start of the losing season streak. Just a lot of bad Sunday afternoons in those uniforms, seeing them actually play well on a national broadcast during them was hopefully the sign, you know, just a, a nice physical reminder, a nice tangible reminder that something is actually changing here. I thought that there was a, and I don't know how many people were engaged late in this game last night just because of the blowout nature of it, but I thought there was one moment that was as bad for the Cubs as it was good for the White Sox, and that is the point where the Cubs reliever, Jason Adam, buzzes the tower of Jose Abreu, comes in high and tight with a blistering fastball. Abreu has to get out of the way. Next pitch comes in, and Abreu deposits it deep in the left field bleachers, and Abreu just sprints around the bases. What did you think about that moment right there, and was there a a better moment in the game for, if you are a White Sox fan, um, this side of, of Luis Roberts? I think Abreu has a tendency to, you know, he gets beat up a lot, especially like say when he didn't have a whole lot of protection behind him and he was kind of the guy they would pitch him relentlessly inside. He'd get hit multiple times a game and a lot of times he wears it well and just, you know, takes his base with no issue. But sometimes, especially like when it comes to like the second hit by pitch of the game, you can see the, the anger, the frustration in his face, just uh, yeah, the, the glare lasting a little bit longer, the, the, the pace to first, a little bit slower and more deliberate. And, and so uh, haven't seen as much as, uh, of that from him this year. It's been, uh, especially when now that they're winning, uh, with the winning streak, has been a lot more, uh, yeah, a lot more smiles, a lot more uh, you know, kind of goofing around and just uh, uh, giddiness, I think, that we haven't seen from him. But uh, that was, yeah, a little bit of the, the old uh, Abreu from the last few years where just uh, uh, takes it personally because, you know, he's the guy and they just, you know, I, I think there's a, a bit of, you know, maybe carelessness that he detects when it's like an under, you know, like, like a low leverage, underproven reliever coming in inside and not showing that he can do it responsibly. I think that's where Abreu takes some offense. And, yeah, it kind of remind me of the, uh, the Paul Canerco playbook, uh, getting hit in the face by Pavano and then homering the next at bat just – there's no better revenge. You'd like to see, you know, the, the traditional form of revenge is the, you know, the pitchers retaliating and throwing inside beanball war, warning exchange, benches clearing, or at least standing at the top of the step of the dugout. And uh, that's, you know, there's, there's some purpose to that, I think, in protecting teammates, but I think the best kind of revenge is the immediate revenge served up by the same guy who was offended by it. Right. Yes. You heard his ERA and there you go. We're moving right along. We're talking with Jim Margallis, the Sox machine here on the score. Steve Rosenblum, Mark Mark Rohde, Saturday Suckage. So Dallas Keuchel is in there for a lot longer than most people think, and he throws 114 pitches. And and it was you're verging on slaughter rules being invoked. Mm -hmm. And when asked why he let Dallas Keuchel throw so many pitches in eight innings of a slaughter, Ricky Renteria said 
He wanted it. He wanted to keep going. You have an opportunity to let a guy that's been wanting to eat up a few more innings and continue to build up. He felt good, and we allowed him to go ahead and do it. Well, he hadn't thrown 114 pitches in since April 2017, and all pitchers think they can go out there and do it, and I expect the manager to be the adult in the room and say, no, you've, you've done enough, thank you. We're going to close mm-hmm. this one out. What did you think about the manager letting the pitcher do that and the manager's thought process that he voiced afterwards? Well, it, yeah, it reminds me a little bit of Jake Peavy and, uh, you know, during the Ozzie Guillen days when Peavy was the bulldog who wanted to be the ace before his body was ready for him to be the ace. And so he wanted to take the ball, wanted the extra inning, wanted to face the batter he shouldn't face and come off the mound uh, stomping and snorting and, and uh, you know, just uh, fuming in the dugout. And, and you know, Ozzie, you know, uh, a few times didn't uh, – you know, just uh, let him do it, and sure enough, he got hurt again. Had to go on the DL and uh, DL at the time, and uh, it just—it it seemed like there needed to be a bigger person in the room to take that rage and be able to absorb it. You know, let the let the pitcher vent or whatever, and 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 get past it. So that's what comes to mind when I see a guy like Keuchel doing that, and or or, or getting that kind of leverage or leeway um, for an inning where it's not really necessary. I guess the one thing that it, it, that you know is is okay about it is that they have two off days next week, and so if they want to try to push him through a certain barrier, I think they did the same thing with Dane Dunning during his start. Like, yeah, I think if that was a must-win game, I would have pulled him after four, wouldn't have even let him start the fifth because of the way his pitches were finishing in the fourth. But he comes out and he tries to face a few batters too many, and I think because of in Dunning's case, it's because uh, you know Schaumburg is not going to be a, uh, uh, an environment where he can get the traditional pitch ramp up, uh, the intensity levels, uh, being able to fight through fatigue to give an extra inning. He's not going to be able to do that. They're just not set up for that. So the game, real game situation is the only place he'll be able to do that. So that's why he stayed out there for a few batters too long. And I can kind of understand that given the idiosyncrasies of the season. But yeah, for Keuchel, seems like a bit high risk because seven innings is plenty, especially with two off days uh, the following week. There's really no purpose in 114 pitches. Like you're not going to see a whole lot of payoff for them. Uh, from that from here on out so struck me as a necessary risk might be able to get away with it because of the two off days I think if there were no off days the following week or maybe just one that would I I think uh, that that would have been a case where just that's more malpractice but with two off days I'm hoping that Keuchel comes back no uh, ill effects I think it's just something where it's a necessary risk because if he does look a little bit worse for the wearers next time out uh, people are going to point to that pitch count and there's no real defense against it well the other part possibly too is that Reynaldo Lopez is scheduled to start tonight for the White Sox and he may be on a pitch count so this may be a bullpen night for Ricky Renteria and I guess my my question about Reynaldo Lopez is how how do you feel about him going forward I mean I know he was injured but Mm -hmm. he was not been good this year when he was supposedly healthy yeah, I think I like him as the fifth starter, or, you know, he's a fine fifth starter. The fifth starters are usually interchangeable, either you're based on uh, stuff or experience or, um, you know, injuries or whatever endurance issues they have. Um, yeah, he when it comes to his approach, uh, I, I think that's the thing that separates him from all the other pitchers in the rotation, at least all the, the fixtures in the rotation, is that he really only succeeds when he's got 
his his premium or at least his good fastball command. Uh, when he doesn't have a good fastball command and needs to feel it out, like Giolito, when he is up there and he doesn't have his good fastball command, he can float changeups until he starts feeling right. Or you know, Keigel can throw cutters and sinkers and changeups. He's got a whole arsenal. Rodon can, when he's healthy, he can throw sliders. And Cease has a couple different looks, although he's still trying to prove himself too. So he's not quite above Lopez yet, but. Uh, Lopez just he doesn't have that kind of secondary pitch, the plan B he can go to, to to correct himself. So when he's when he's off or his fastball is less than either uh, the command isn't there or the velocity isn't there, it just seems like it's you're going to be hard pressed to get like one turn through the lineup before uh, things go wrong. So I think in this case, I, I wouldn't mind seeing Lopez as like a uh, you know, and Renteria has been loath to use this, but like an opener, you have him go out there for one turn through the lineup, two innings. Or yeah, uh, you know, even one inning, just whatever the case is, where the uh, back of the lineup shows up for the first first time. But Gio Gonzalez out there. Uh, Gonzalez has been good for four innings, and then he starts hitting the wall around the fifth. There's a lot of use for a pitcher like that if you have uh, expanded uh, rotation or expanded bullpen, and you have some guys like Matt Foster, like maybe Lopez, who can go two innings at the top of the top of the game, and then turn the lineup over for G, uh, Gonzalez to go four or five, and then all of a sudden you're to the seventh and. Uh, your regular bullpen use can be restored. So I think there's a way to use Lopez, but if he comes out flat or he doesn't have his best stuff and he's going to be the Lopez we've more or less seen for the last uh, year and a half, uh, I hope they try to find some alternate usage pattern for him to where you're not counting on him getting five or six every time because this isn't going to be the season for it, uh, even if he needs to. I guess even if there is a starting pitcher still in there, I think given the – uh, lack of AAA baseball, the lack of rehab stints, and everything being basically figured out on the fly. This isn't going to be the year to make a miracle happen with him. Jim, the idea of, of giving Lopez chances, using him as different situations, at what point in this shortened season, with the playoff berth attainable and, and right there, and, and the, the Sox could even win the division the way things are going, at what point do you not put him in any part of the rotation and he's just a bullpen guy? What what point does this year matter against the growth of a young arm that you made a big trade for? Well, I think it can be pretty soon, especially like when his last time out, when he left with the shoulder issue, his velocity was down and it dropped further basically with every pitch. So I think his weaknesses or his, um, I, I guess the flaws are, that are most plaguing him this season are going to be pretty detectable pretty quickly, and they have some options to get through a start. I think Dane Dunning showing up for four innings was really important just for the depth and resources that uh, the Ricks have this year and trying to cobble together the third through fifth spots in the rotation. So I, I think if Lopez comes out throwing 94 rather than 96, 97, and if the you know slider has no power and just basically he's just trying to grunt through innings, should be pretty clear that he, you know, his, his usage should be pretty minimal this year or pretty rested or pretty, um, you know, limited to one turn through just because he's not going to have a whole, uh, whole lot of tricks to show teams if they face him a second time. So I think that's with his, uh, I guess, with the shape of his flaws and with the way his weaknesses have materialized this year, it, it, there should be a whole lot of mystery to him uh, if he's not right. Jim, everybody hits home runs for the White Sox. Who hits the best home runs for the White Sox? <laughs> Eloy against the uh, Cubs. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, 
I think now that Jimenez is pulling them in the air, I think he's in the lead right now. I think Robert hits like the most violent homers. <laughs> oh God, yeah, oh, that's yeah. such a good word, dude. That well, that like that like home run last running... night was a tomahawk shot. Yeah, it's almost like he gets a running start in the batter's box, <laughs> just to, uh, <laughs> like a forehand smash. But I think when it comes to like majesty, uh, Eloy pulling the ball. Is, uh, is something uh, I'm, I'm liking that, that he's doing more and more because I think he's settling for a kind of opposite field homers. He's so strong that he can just poke the ball into the craft cave in right field. And, and that does the same job as a, a 450 footer to left. But I think when he gets under it, the backspin he generates, the follow through uh, is just, uh, it almost seems there's almost like a preordained nature uh, to that homer. I mean, you only realize in hindsight, but just the follow through, Everything about it start to finish is uh, – there's a beauty to it. I think Robert is more just a – there's a – just um, – just uh, he's a physical marvel, and it just the speed he generates and everything is, is uh, impressive. But you almost feel like somebody can get hurt doing that, <laughs> whereas Jimenez just feels like baseball beauty. I, I have uh, Dylan Cease throwing a no-hitter Sunday and Eloy hitting four home runs, all of taking place in Wrigley Field and the Cubs submitting their forfeiture of their baseball charter. <laughs> I see that. That's how that's going, but we'll watch, and we'll see how the weekend plays out. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, it's always great. Thanks. Thank you. Jim Margallis of Sox Nation. Uh, and Sox Machine. Um, so he will be, he and, um, and then he'll be doing a podcast, the Sox Machine podcast, and with Josh Nelson. And there you go. Sox fans have reason to, well, the highs are high and the lows are low. That's the way the season goes. That's the way you feel about that. Um, that's that's the Sox are leaving nothing, nothing in the middle, pretty much. Uh, we're gonna take a break. We'll see how the Cubs are doing uh, before we get done with this hour. Mark Gonzalez of the Chicago Tribune will join us. We will talk to him about the Cubs. He covers the Cubs for the Tribune. I'm Steve Rosenblum. He's Mark Rody. Saturday Suckage, thank you for joining us. Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. This is Sports Radio 670 The Score and 670thescore.com. Chicago Sports Station. Second inning on, went wrong. Um, Just too many hard hit balls. So I find it fascinating that I've given up all but one run on homers this year. So obviously need to fix that. And um, if I start keeping the ball in the ballpark, maybe uh, pitch a little bit better. wind is a pirate blustering in from sea with a rollicking song he sweeps along swaggering boisterously his face is weather beaten he wears a hooded sash with a silver hat about his head and a bristling black mustache he growls as he storms the country a villain big and bold and the trees all shake and quiver and quake as he robs them of their gold the autumn wind is a raider pillaging just for fun he'll knock you round and upside down and laugh when he's conquered and won that is the greatest walk-up music ever 
It has been selected by Mark Gonzalez of the Chicago Tribune, who joins us now on the Alpamonte Ford Hotline, Alpamonte Ford in Melrose Park. Gonzo, so glad to have you and John Facenda back. Thanks for both. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Now, if you can only find the Cubs' offense, huh? Yeah. Well, so who's been the most disappointing Cubs hitter? There's a lot to choose from. Tell us who and why. Um, I would say just based on uh, health and, and number of bats and all that would have to be uh, Javier Baez. I mean, we see snippets now and then. He ripped a double a couple of days ago. It looked like everything's back. He broke up Keuchel's no-hit bid yesterday, but um, he's just striking out too much. Um, certainly you can make a case for other guys, but he's not drawing the walks like Contreras. Um, just not getting on base. Uh, but there are plenty of guys. It's not just him, but if you want me to single one guy out, I would say it would be him. Yeah, and in the big picture, Gonzo, that you know, Cubs have not been hitting for the most of, the, of this season. They have gotten away with it. Last night they, they did not, but that had more to do with the White Sox offense. So the question is, let's just say it stays like this, the offense, and you continue to get excellent pitching. Is it sustainable in terms of doing damage in the postseason and getting to where you want to get ultimately? I don't think it's sustainable. I think one of these guys has to start getting hot because you can't rely on Ian Happ all the time or expecting uh, Jason Hayward or Nico Horner or Kyle Schwarber to come up with a big hit. It's going to take more than that. I mean, these guys have carried the freight for a while. Now it's it's up to the top of the order to really come through, you know, and that includes Anthony Rizzo as well. Talking with Mark Gonzalez, the Chicago Tribune. He covers the Cubs right here on Talking to him right here on the score, Steve Rosenblum, Mark Grody on Saturday suckage for you. So at the opposite end of that, if, if Baez is the biggest disappointment, Ian Happ, the greatest, I'm I maybe not surprised, but the happiest surprise. It was like they always had hopes for him to do this, and now he's he's delivering in a lot of different situations. Uh, Happ's season looks like the one they were hoping for when, when Joe led him off that year that the leadoff position now seems to be killing everybody, but this is the half they were expecting, isn't it, Gronzo? Yeah, it is, and I think even in the darkest moments of Ian's young career, the one thing he never lost was his confidence. I mean, he's a guy who completely believes in himself, and he has said all along, and to his credit, he just needed more at-bats, and he's getting that uh, regular playing time and making the most of it, and he's making uh, – substantial improvements from the right side. I don't think he's where he wants to be right now as far as a hitter from the right side, but he's certainly come up with a share of big hits. I think he's hit, probably hit around 250, 260 from the right side, which I think is, is respectable right now. And I think he, he wants to get better. I think he will. Uh, and I think it just goes to show with a lot of hard work and, and not giving up that he's where he's at right now, and I think he's going to get better. One thing I've learned, Gonzo, about – John Lester is that when he's bad, he's horrible. Like he just, we have seen games every year of his Cubs career where he just didn't have it, and then typically he rebounds. Now more people worry now than when he has bad starts like last night, and to a lesser degree the one previous to last night that uh oh he's getting old. Are we actually seeing the 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 big decline in John Lester now? Do you think? there should be any sort of chronic concerns about John Lester going forward after last night. 
Um, I wouldn't say chronic concerns. That was just a bad, bad, bad matchup for him. <laughs> um, and it happens to certain guys. Certain guys have their kryptonite. And uh, the White Sox, that, that was his kryptonite, especially the way they hit lefties. I, mean, I think they're now, what, 6-0, and 7-0 against left-handed starters. Um, and, and John just has to, be, has to be right against those guys. And I think he pointed out, to his credit, about how all the runs scored against him this year, except for one run, been on home runs. So um, he knows he's got some fixing to do. I, I have some theories on that. Uh, but, you know, he still has about seven starts left to, to get things right. And, and I just think that last night was just a bad, bad matchup for him. Will you share your theories, or is that something you need to keep to yourself, Mr. Gunn? Uh, no, I mean, I, I'm, you know, amateur analyst here, so I, I can say what I want. I, I just think some, some of it had to do with, with, with pitch selection as well. Uh, you know, his cutter just wasn't there for the start, and one of the – the uh, I was trying to find the right word, but anyway, one of, the, one of the points of John's success has been his ability to change speeds quite well in those first three starts, and I think – uh, I need to get back to that would really help because he was really uh, confusing batters early uh, in the starts. You know, the Reds come to mind just throwing a lot of slow off-speed pitches. Not being a junk ball pitcher exclusively, but uh, he was really mixing it up well. And I think one of the things with the uh, White Sox hitters you got to do is disrupt timing because they're a very unforgiving offense, especially when it comes to lefties and fastballs. And I just saw too many too many pitches uh, – out over the plate, they were just getting crushed. These guys don't don't miss many mistakes. And you know, I always go back to what Joe Madden said about pitchers. Pitchers give up the home runs, not the hitters, because they make usually the mistakes. And I think John can go back to mixing up his pitches more. I think he'll be okay. At least, at least that'll be a good start for him. Speaking of Joe Madden, assess the job David Ross has done this season. He's kept the troops very tight. Um, he's done a really good job under the circumstances, especially with the pandemic, of keeping his guys sharp but also united as well. I mean, you see the, 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 the spirit in the dugout. Anthony Rizzo giving a lot of credit for that, and rightfully so. But I think the fact that David's on these guys just remind him, hey, we got a game to play, lay it out there, um, do it for yourselves, do it for the people that aren't able to – to be in the stands or at home, um, he's really sent a pretty strong message there with that. And I think, um, to his credit, he's done a, a super job, especially for a first-year guy. And I think the guys have bought into his message pretty well. Um, I don't think there's been a large enough sample size to, to, to assess, you know, when he's left the pitcher and they're too long, or maybe should, you know, should let him go a little longer. I think that that's that's up in the air yet. I don't think he's really had a Long sample size to, to really judge him on that. Um, In-game strategy, I know some people were baffled about the the uh, Schwarber bunt earlier this week. I had no problem with it. There were no outs, and, and he needed more base runners and and have you. Uh, the hap, hap bunt, I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of think that might have been on Ian's own. But I'd say for the most part, he's done okay. There's going to be more challenges. I think to David's credit, he's admitted his mistakes. Uh, talking about Ryan Tapera not having uh, enough faith in him. They put him on the opening day roster. Uh, they corrected that. He's done pretty well. And I think a, a player, a manager uh, admits his mistake and, and the players are accepting of it. It goes a long way. And he was 
Ross was thrown right into the fire in terms of, at least early on, having a wholly ineffective closer. I mean, that's a horrible way to start your managerial tenure to having who is perceived as your best bullpen guy as being bad. However, that the, the most recent save that Craig Kimbrell had against the Cardinals was the first time that I saw Craig Kimbrell circa Boston from a couple of years ago where he was hitting 99 on the clock. The curveball was wicked. The fastball was getting swing and miss. Is He's the closer now, right? Well, that's still a work in progress. If he is, David's not saying it yet, and I don't think um, we're all there yet. I think we'd have to see it in successive uh, safe situations and anoint him as the full-time closer again. I think they got a, a nice spot right now where, you know, Rowan Wick's gotten his feet wet. Jeffers has experience there. And now uh, Craig's back to throwing 99, which I think is the biggest thing. Some people think it's, it's just uh, spotting that fastball, getting it uh, in all quadrants of the strike zone. But I still think it goes back to velocity because last year – he was down a bit, and I think part of that had to do with just not having a normal spring training. I think since then, um, he's found his arm slot. He's got his strength back. And then on top of that, spotting the curve and throwing that for strikes, he's keeping hitters uh, honest and off balance. But 1-1 one, one lead in the ninth tonight, it's, it's Kimbrell, don't you think? Don't you think it would be Kimbrell? Yeah, I would think so. But then again, you know, David's gone with matchups too. You know, who's the best matchup in that case? So... Uh, we'll wait and see. It'd be interesting to see how how the the White Sox hitters react to, to Craig, especially since he's got such a sharp curve and uh, is, can throw that high fastball, and, and it seems to rise. So that'd be a, a nice showdown for the ninth if if it happens tonight or even tomorrow. I have liked Rowan Wicks' moxie, poise, calm, whatever you want to call it, and I can see how this how this builds that up almost the way I remember listening to Roger Craig talk about Jeff Brantley of just a guy who's unfazed by it. So I see that and I don't know if I'm missing something, if there, if you've seen some cracks in it, size up Rowan Wick for us as the potential closer at some point in time, Gonzo. Uh, tremendous upside. I mean, some people don't realize this guy was a catcher outfielder in the uh, farm systems of the Cardinals and Padres. And, uh, it seems he's a quick learner, that his arm has uh, been well-conditioned to adjust to a relief role, um, seems to learn very well, uh, throws hard, but he's also got you know a big breaker as well. I, I think he's, and he's got the calmness out there. You don't, you don't see uh, bad body language when he pitches. I think that's a really, really good sign for a guy who uh, could be a closer in the future because uh, – they definitely need more homegrown uh, arms to help that bullpen instead of going through this whole recycling thing. Now they've they've done pretty well this year so far with with some of these guys they've gotten from other organizations, namely guys like Tapera and Winkler and and Sadler sometimes. But um, it really makes your job easier in the off season when you have homegrown guys that uh, can really help you. And I, and I consider Wick homegrown in the sense he's been in the system for a few years now. So. Um, that bodes well for the future. One more bullpen question for me. Could there have been a worse moment last night than Jason Adam going high and tight on Jose Abreu, and then the next pitch he just just crushes it into the bleachers and left? 
That was a, uh, a you call a statement at bat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't think he was trying to hit him. He was just trying to jam him. That ball took off, and uh, uh, fortunately it missed missed Abreu. But that was uh, the ultimate statement at bat, just uh, next pitch, staying in there and, and cranking it, you know, 465 feet or whatever it was. It, I think it just landed, but um, <laughs> I did this – Fortunate that Abreu didn't get hit because that would have been a really ugly situation. Gonzo, we appreciate your time. Enjoy the rest of the series, especially the Dylan C. Snow hitter with four home runs by Eloy on Sunday. <laughs> That'll be a thing. Uh, Steve, the yeah. fearless forecaster. <laughs> yeah, why not? And Gonzo, I know we don't say it enough, but you are deluxe. Thank you. you. Deluxe. I... You're, you're deluxe beat writer and a deluxe guest. We appreciate that. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for coming on. That's Mark Gonzalez, Chicago Tribune, a deluxe beat writer and a deluxe guest. And now we uh, will take a break and we'll come back with a deluxe segment because Mark Rohde over there has changed his mind about something. He talked about it in his uh, show planning video, heading to the grocery store kind of thing. And uh, we will we will zero in on that. Mark will share with us what about which he has changed his mind. Saturday suckage coming to you. We suck so you don't have to. Chicago Sports Radio, six seventy the score. Hmm. Interesting. Like your sports page in the morning, Molly and Hall are first to let you know what happened with your favorite Chicago team last night. Good morning to the engineers of the greatest show in radio history. I'm here to wow you. Molly and Hall, first and best, mornings 5 to 9. I am here for you. On 670 The Score, Chicago's number one sports station. This is Sports Radio 670 The Score and 670thescore.com. Chicago's sports station. Saturday suckage. We are sucking so you don't have to. We'll be doing that till 2 o'clock today here on The Score, broadcasting live from the Hyundai Studios, brought to you by your local Hyundai dealers. And um, as we do each week, we plan the show on Twitter, just sort of going back and forth. And Mark added a new wrinkle to it. He decided to tape a video, a selfie video or video selfie. I don't know which is, which, I don't know which phrase the popular kids use, but it was a video selfie to plan the show as he was headed to the grocery store, and he got back in time to do it. And in that, he mentioned something that he's changed his mind about. Well, inquiring minds want to know, Mark Grody, what? Cole Komet is going to be good right away for the Bears. And when anybody had asked me that question prior to this, and people have been asking me whether it's been on the score or other radio stations that I've done guest spots for, or just people out in the public asking about Cole Komet, is he going to, my answer has always been, yeah, I think he's going to be good eventually, but it's going to take a few games to learn that Y tight end position as it typically does with young players. I have scratched that. I think Cole Komet is going to be good right away. Just from what I've watched in practice, his ability to obviously catch the football has been outstanding during the practices. To know where he is supposed to be has been spot on during the practices. And then there's the other part, too. And I put this part second because I know that it's going to take some convincing of people when I bring this up. 
but based on the reaction of teammates and coaches. Typically, you're not going to get a coach or a player to obviously break bad on anybody, but I've gotten pretty good at telling the difference between when somebody's just saying what he thinks he has to say and then using real terminology that suggests to me that what he's saying is, is genuine. I've heard enough from coaches now and from teammates to realize that it's not just platitudes and hyperbole when they're talking about, oh my God, this guy is really good. It feels real. When Jimmy Graham says he, he, it, he feels like a young me, I think there's some realness to his words. And I get it. I get it. I could be accused of drinking the Kool-Aid um, at Hallis Hall, where I am just about every day of my life for the last two weeks and going forward. But <laughs> I'm starting to see stuff from... from and I, I brought this up to, to somebody really on the inside of the Bears. And I said, I, I, I brought this up yesterday. I said, I have to tell you, I admit that I did not think Cole Komet was going to be great until maybe midseason or even next year. I said, I now think he's going to be good right away. And this person said to me, oh, I knew he would be great right away. So that that's what I'm flip-flopping on. I think that Cole Komet is going to be very good right away. How much are they asking him in the block? I'm asking of him in the blocking game. They're asking him lots in the blocking game. That that will be definitely part of what he is doing. But they need a receiving tight end. And mm -hmm. yes, Cole Komet will be asked to be a blocker. But I think his career will sprout as a as a pass catching tight end. We know that Jimmy Graham at this point in his career is not what he once was and one that should not be dependent upon to catch eight balls for 100 yards this year. That's just not Jimmy Graham's game anymore. I think that that has to now be Cole Komet, and I think that that's what we ultimately are going to see out of him. He, he's going to be known as, I believe, as a pass-catching tight end when it's all said and done. So with, with Jimmy Graham injecting some real or imagined, whatever, maybe this is him, maybe it's not, but he's certainly been animated in catching whatever red zone touchdowns he catches. And and that kind of production, expected production, that kind of weaponry, the expected use of that weaponry, does that make the way you guys are allowed to watch the Bears practice, the way their red zone practices go, is that more acute now? Is that a place where you start when the quarterback reads something? Are you first, you're standing on the sideline, everybody's standing on the sideline watching. Where's the tight end? And does Trubisky or Foles see him, target him? Is that where he goes with it? Is that your reads, your progressions? Well, I. there's been a lot of passes thrown to the tight ends just in general. Mm -hmm. I... I would say that there's just such a small window in practice where they're actually doing 11 on 11 and we could see things occur. Like literally, I'd say about 15 minutes of the 90 minutes we're out there. There is that going on. And there's so many things still that they're doing that we are not going to see during the regular season, as in Tyler Bray getting reps or, you know, whomever. Name, name your obscure player on offense or defense that... I guess to answer your question, no. I guess I, I have not been acutely watching their how you know, zeroing in on the tight end and seeing yeah. what they are doing red zone wise with Jimmy Graham. However, 
they have been throwing to the tight ends a lot, as they should be doing, just to get that position correct. So Jimmy Graham says he has a lot to prove. I have a big chip on my shoulder, and I thought, well, you're short, you're already small, um, slow enough, then we don't need anything else to slow you down. How does his speed look compared to the people who have been covering him? Pretty good. Like, he's not as fast as he once was, but uh-huh. Jimmy Graham is, like, falls in this. So now, he, now he's a guy who, when people speak about him in glowing terms, I am, I am taking some of that as hyperbole. When, he's, when he is referred to as RoboCop, or this guy's amazing, and wow, what an influence he's having. I, I will now that that is that is something that I will say. Okay, I'm not sure if, you know, this this is where a player just talks up another player because it's the right thing to do. Um, so, and but he's at that point in his career, Steve, where he's been around long enough where people really do. When Jimmy Graham comes to your team, it's like, ah, oh, cool, man, that's Jimmy Graham. That's awesome, Jimmy Graham. Like Cole Komet was 12. When Jimmy Graham was playing like so good that they thought he was a wide receiver at one point in time with the Saints, like Jimmy Graham had you know a five or six year period where he was the best tight end around or one of the best tight ends around and kind of changing the position a little bit, like along with some other guys. So there is an awe factor when Jimmy Graham walks onto your team. It's like cool, man. So they're only gonna say nice things about Jimmy Graham. I hope, like, he is a classic case of a guy who this coaching staff said knows what he is, but like, you know what? We think we can do something with him at this point. We think that we can still get something out of Jimmy Graham. We think we we can be the team to put him in a position to win, and that's what they're booking on right now. But at this point, uh, I'm not going on anything that's being said about Jimmy Graham. Okay, all right, fair enough, and um, I would have I would have expected that, but. Who knows? We'll we'll see if they pick the right quarterback and they pick the right quarterback who can pick the right open receiver and read the right defense and then maybe they can make Jimmy Graham look better than he is and and make help Cole Komet advance further and help the the offense be so much more productive than it was last year when it was one of the worst. That's that's what that position represents. And we've been talking about a position that reflects directly on the quarterback, his ability to read, their ability to score touchdowns in the red zone. It is so important. And Matt Nagy continues to make that point by not being able to call those plays or by now calling them and having two guys at different ends of the spectrum that he can use. It's it's going to be a major part of the playbook that I imagine Nick uh, Nick Foles will use when he's the starting quarterback. Oh, did I Steve, one guy that we haven't heard um, from the Bears at all has yeah. been Khalil Mack, and we will, I'm being told, oh. we will be hearing from Khalil oh. Mack via Zoom later this afternoon. I don't know if I'll be able to be on it because I, the schedule time for the Zoom calls is 1.30 today, and you and I are doing a radio show until 2, so I don't know if I'll be on that, but it, it you he will be... He will be speaking today, and there are questions to be asked for sure because, you know, everybody talked about how 
kind of the indication was that Khalil Mack was really pissed off about the way last season went down for the team and for him personally. And then this year, he has been not playing as big of a part in training camp, and I think it's in the name of preservation because, as Matt Nagy put it, they can preserve him and let him sit out and watch a little bit more. But, um, yeah, he's been a hard get, so I'm looking forward to hearing what uh, Khalil Mack has to say. David Montgomery will be speaking as well. So uh, that you know that will come back to you at some by the way, what's on starting at 2 o'clock here on the score? Because that would be a good way to know if we're going to be able Oh, CBS Sports Radio. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely, at least at some point in time, be listening to what happens during Khalil Mack and uh, tweeting out the, the key parts of it. All right. Well, we can't build a bridge to Bears All Access or anything, but we will build a bridge to what are you doing, Wagner? Take a break, and we will do that. We'll take a look at things or in and around the sports world that – often have nothing to do with sports, but are just things that we need to bring to your attention. Uh, He's Mark Grody. I'm Steve Rosenblum. Saturday Suckage, Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. What are you doing, Wagner? With a shortened season and both the Cubs and Sox playing great baseball, the 2020 Crosstown Series will be more important than ever. David drives one in the air to the center field fence. That ball is gone. Listen to Pat and Ron bring you all the action of every game here all weekend. Boy cracks this ball. Deep center field. Bring him home. Crosstown Series coverage on the score is brought to you by Xfinity. Xfinity XFi delivers blazing fast Wi-Fi with no curveballs. On Sports Radio 670, the score. Official radio home of the Chicago Cubs. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 